Today's read, A Moment of Silence, Midnight Three by Sister Soldier, Chapter 20, Marcus. It's for you, Chiasa said, handing me the blue phone. Our eyes locked. Her father had never requested to speak to me, and he was the only one who called her on the blue phone. She felt me, then mouthed, It's Marcus. I nodded for her to leave the room, even though it's her bedroom. She left. Go, I said. It's Marcus, he said. What? Are you ready, he asked. Date, time, and place, I said. First things first. I hope you're not the type of dude who engages in pillow talk, he said. I didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. So, I didn't say nothing. Just waited for him to tell me when and where and at what time he wanted to fight. No matter what happens, he began saying, and no matter the outcome, you and me, we don't involve no mothers, aunts, or girl cousins in our beef, Marcus said. No women, I summed it up for him. Then I said, what else would it be? To let him know that's how I normally handle man-to-man conflict. Girls and guns, I keep them separate. Meet me tomorrow night, 9 p.m. on 120th and Riverside Drive, the park between Riverside and the West Side Highway, he said. I agreed. Tomorrow, 9 p.m., no women and no cops, I said. Definitely no cops and no guns, he added on. I hung up. Instinctively, while thinking about it, I started doing push-ups on Chiasa's bedroom floor. I was already in my basketball shorts from the early evening practice. Exercise never fails to speed up my thought process. Brings me new ideas and strategies about anything on my mind at the time. Besides, exercise is daily. Morning, afternoon, and night, second only to my prayers. She knocked lightly. I didn't answer. I was keeping the count. She turned her knob and pushed in slightly. Now her face was in, and her body was on the other side of her door. The whites of her eyes were shining like headlights set on high beam. She came in and dropped down beside me and began doing push-ups as well. Her being right next to me and seeing her pretty arms and shoulders diluted my concentration and fucked up the count. 68, 69, she said, as she started counting for me from where I had left off. She was smiling at me, and I was getting drawn in by those long lashes. I'm breathing harder than you, she said. I didn't respond, just picked up the count where she'd stopped counting. 89, 90, 91, I said, counting aloud. When I reached 100, she stopped pushing up. When I raised up on 102, she rolled over and beneath me. So when I went down, she and I were pressed together. Tell me, is all she said. Breathing hard and catching her breath, I raised up off of her and said, 103. 
When I came down, she wrapped her arms around me and would not let go. I went up 104, I said. Now I was raised up and her body was clinging to me, adding enough weight onto a man who did a hundred a clip to cause me to come crashing down. And we laughed. Shh, she said, and went into her secret love mode that she'd made up for us. What did he want? She whispered to me. She was curious about the convo I'd just had with Marcus. I was thinking, at least she is smart enough not to say his name to me. Even though he is her blood-related cousin, that would be too much. You slid beneath me, I said to her. Yeah, I did, she answered softly. So focus on what I want. After the before sunrise prayer, I was on Riverside Drive at the park in my sweats, gripping my ball. I was checking it out. I had given Marcus some advantages I would never willingly give up to any other fighter, rival, or enemy. I allowed him to choose the location of our battle. So, of course, he had chosen Harlem, his own territory. It would be familiar, almost second nature to him, and unfamiliar to me. I had also allowed him to choose the time, of course, he chose the cover of darkness, nighttime on his home territory. I allowed him to select the date. More than two weeks had elapsed since the first family dinner at Aunt Tasha's, his father and mother's house. Of course, he had been training his body every day since then, training and dreaming and scheming on how he could best get at me. As I walked through this old park, I did a detailed survey of the area. I checked out the perimeter, the actual entrances and exits, the makeshift entrances and exits through the random holes in the fence as well as on the highway side. Then I paused beneath the oak trees looking at the bushes and scoping out possible hiding spaces where anyone could cover and spring out and attack. The fight between Marcus and me was supposed to be one-on-one. Still, I needed to consider that since we were on his territory, maybe he would have a crew laying in the cut in some of these hidden spaces. Ninjutsu training requires that one of my steps in a fight where I have time to plan must be to place myself into the mind of my opponent for my own good. If I could imagine his thoughts and strategies and moves when he does actually make them, I have already eliminated the element of surprise because I already saw those exact moves in my mind's eye and have already examined my options and choreographed my responses. I spotted a big boulder and pressed my Tims against it to see if it moved. I was imagining throwing down an opponent 
his head accidentally smashing open on that boulder, that wouldn't be good. I did not want murder and did not have murder on my mind. I would put that hurt on him, though. I wanted him to feel the pain so the pain could be a reminder for him to stay in his lane since we are family and I plan to love his cousin, my wife and second mother to my first wife's children, inshallah, and first mother to her and my children, inshallah, for as long as Allah gave me breath. In the play area, I was scoping out the benches, the swings, the caves, and the monkey bars. It was a place made for children. At the same time, at night, when no children would be out here, all of these would become weapons, especially for a fighter who could leap, launch, and fly, as my sister Naja calls some of the moves in martial arts that she observed at my dojo. I was moving past the handball court onto the dirt of the volleyball area with the ripped up net. I was envisioning my opponent being kicked down to the ground then secretly coming up with a fistful of sand or soil to throw in my eyes and gain the advantage. Right outside of that area is a small workout spot with three pull-up bars, all positioned at varying heights. It looked like a challenge to me. I leapt onto the highest one, banged out 50 pull-ups before I lifted my legs, brought them towards my head, and then hung on the bar by my quads. I was experiencing now the feeling of reversing my blood circulation. Everything was upside down and my eyes were facing the sky. The promise of the sun was being delayed by hordes of crowded and busy black clouds. It felt like the clouds were having a massive meeting where they were plotting a conspiracy to kill the sun. I smiled knowing that the clouds, despite their numbers and movements, could delay but could never defeat the sun. Arriving at their basketball court, rims, no nets, uneven and slightly shorter than regulation height, I thought aloud, instead of a fight, he should have challenged me to a game on his court. That way, no blood would be drawn and his defeat would be easier for his ego to manage. Then suddenly, I heard my sensei's voice in my mind, the simple but true advice cautioning me to never underestimate my opponent. I smiled again, thinking to myself, true that. At the same time though, I was also thinking, what's this cat's motivation for this fight? What did he stand to gain or to lose? He didn't attempt to place a wager on the outcome. There was no prize or reward in it for him. If we fought one-on-one as agreed and no one else saw it, there was no glory in it for him. I reminded myself not to bang my brain on it. It was next to impossible for me to understand the African-American mindset. Most of them were mad at the things that should make them happy, I thought and content and stagnant with the things that should make them make moves. Too many of them 
hated the exact things that they should love, I thought. Consequently, they loved the things that should be hated. It didn't seem to matter whether they were educated or uneducated, street cats or PhDs, rich or poor, or stuffed in between rich and poor. They all seemed to be comfortable with sex, yet fearful of love. Most of them seemed to be completely against marriage at any age, especially marriage before sex or marriage between young adults. The young females expected any guy who they found attractive to sex them, fuck them automatically, and to fuck them good, but at the same time, they humiliated and disrespected good guys who actually loved them while they worshipped and chased and loved guys who ran through and abused them. They feared pregnancy and hated the thought of babies and had already decided on abortions even before they conceived. How the hell was I supposed to understand people who thought and lived like that? To me, it was all backwards. Marcus hated that I had married his cousin and his whole family appeared uncomfortable with how much she loved me and I loved her and that we were wedded and certain. Yet, I had not disrespected his cousin, his parents, niece, my wife. I had not gone into her without marrying her first. I had not sexed her and abandoned her or impregnated her and killed our baby. I had loved her and married her and went into her only after marriage and brought her to my home and protected and provided for her. Shouldn't that make them happy? Instead, this dude wanted to fight. My thoughts led me to the conclusion that he had a thing for my wife even though she is his cousin. Now I'm heated and tight. Now I'm hanging two hands on the rim that I just slam dunked my ball through. It was on the ground rolling and I was just suspended in the air. Want to get a game? Some Harlem dude asked me after tracking down my ball. I dropped down, didn't even agree, but accepted. Check, he said, taking it back. And the one-on-one started. I was playing but I was in my head heavy. I was stealing the ball, dribbling, pushing it back and forth through my legs while fancy footing it, spinning and laying it up. Two was all I said. Fuck it. Now I was thinking of Marcus the way a ninjutsu warrior thinks of his enemy. My mind was converting him from family into someone I wouldn't cease fighting until the deed was done. In my mind's eye, I was seeing the metal trash cans. In this park, they were chained to the bench. I was planting a burner beneath it. I was burying and camouflaging my kunai knives in the soil, handle up, so I could swiftly swoop down and grab them and fire them into his chest. Four, I said. I was seeing a human anatomy map in my mind, the one that Sensei posted on the board in my private lessons. Six, I said. I was deciding whether I was going to target his joints and break limbs or just swipe a gentle cut through his 
brachial artery with my knife and let him bleed to death while he figured out that fighting me was a lose-lose situation for himself from the start. Eight, I said. I was seeing him trying to fight dirty, wearing brass knuckles and banging the sharp metal against my temple. Ten, I said. I was seeing him wearing a spiked ring and trying to gouge out one of my eyes and then drag the ring down, cutting open my face and trying to fuck up my look so my second wife could look at me differently than she does. Twelve, I said. I was seeing him pulling out the four pound after saying no guns and then letting off. 14, I said. I was seeing myself kick the gun out of his hands, both of us leaping up to get it. 16, I said. Of course, I got it first. 18, I said. I didn't shoot. I whip him with it. Just wanted to give him some natural cosmetics to wear for a couple of weeks. 20, I said. I was seeing his cocky ass trying to explain why his face was all swelled up to his military friends and superiors. 22, I said. My second wife's face popped up. Don't hurt him, she asked me. It's better if we can all be friends. We are family, she suggested softly. I slowed down my dribble. My bounce was slow. My eyes were on the hoop. With my right hand, I pushed the ball between my opponent's legs and palmed it from the other side and laid it up. Scoring, I said. That's it. Damn, was all the guy said. He shouldn't have said nothing. How could he invite me to a game and get shut out like that? I got winners, a next cat who rolled up courtside said. I looked at him. Nah, I replied. I gotta get to work. I left the two of them standing there. It was 7.30 a.m. Never understood the dudes that show up to the court without a ball or a friend with a ball. I hopped in a taxi back to Queens. I had 25 minutes to meet up on time with Chris and Amir. Today would be our last day on the wall. A light rain, more like a mist. It's nighttime. I'm headed to the train. At 8.50 p.m., I climbed the last step that led me out of the subway and on to 115th Street in Harlem. I'm walking beneath a downpour, had my wool hat on beneath my black hoodie. It was too warm out to wear it, but I wore it for war. Hot-headed, light-footed, heavy-hearted, I'm walking west. I don't have Marcus's phone number. I refuse to call my second wife to get it. I would not give her swift mind even one clue. I could walk directly to his house to see if he stayed home due to the rainfall, but why show up there and tip off his mom's? She's more clever than a fox and an owl, a forensic psychiatrist, as aggressive as a pit bull or a bloodhound. Nah, I head straight over to the park keeping my word to Marcus and assuming he would keep his word also and show up for the fight he wanted undaunted by some heavy raindrops. The park lights were off. The streets were wet and dark. The leaves on the trees were spilling ounces of cold water at a time. The park entrance on Riverside was chained shut. I kept walking, headed south cause I knew where the hole in the fence was located. On my way, 
I saw cars, taxis and vans speeding and splashing by and a few people running into their Riverside Drive apartments or beneath a canopy or ducking into a doorway. Behind me, I heard someone running. Must be fucking up their kicks in the mud and puddles, I thought, but instinctively, I turned to check. The knife that was about to stab me in my back stabbed me in my chest. Instead, I could feel the puncture. Upper chest, below my left shoulder, but above my heart, and the knife was still in me like a stopper in a sink, preventing the water from draining out. He leaned back, must have been more comfortable with his plan to backstab me, and then breezed by like it wasn't him. But now we were face to face. I knew it was him. I flew my right fist and crashed it into his jaw. He stumbled to his left. Swiftly, I turned my back to him and kicked him down with half a left-footed roundhouse. He leaped right up, looked dizzy, but caught his balance, raised his fists, and lunged at me. I pulled the knife out of my chest and used it to back him down. He feared his own knife. As he backed up, he tripped on a rock and fell backwards. I jammed the knife into the bark of a nearby tree. He was almost back on his feet when I kicked him in his chin forcefully and precisely like an NFL kicker. He was down again and bloody-mouthed. I looked at him and said two words, stand up. As soon as he tried, I kicked him forcefully, crushing his kneecap and broke his leg. I pulled the dagger out from the tree bark. My second wife's image flashed before my eyes. When I had left the house for this fight, she was making a prayer. I wiped the bloody blade clean with the white washcloth in my back pocket, then stuck it down in the dirt next to him. He tried not to look me in the eye. He tried not to cry out in pain, but no matter how manly a man, no matter West Point military training or not, a crushed kneecap causes extreme pain. A second thought came to me. I took two steps back where he lay squirming and pulled his knife from the soil and closed and pocketed it. As I walked away, I pressed the bloody cloth against my wound beneath my my clothes to clog the blood that was leaking down my chest beneath my t-shirt, which was beneath my hoodie. I wasn't worried about him. His younger brother was across the street beneath a canopy, concealing his identity with an umbrella. Good, I thought to myself. He came to watch his big brother defeat the husband of the girl cousin who they were both in love with. Now he gets to try and carry his crippled big brother back home. At my house, I headed upstairs to my Uma, the superb seamstress. I needed her to disinfect and stitch my wound. My second wife opened her first floor bedroom door and saw me. She watched me move up the staircase. She said nothing. She never calls me back or follows me up these stairs that lead to the bedroom of my first wife. 
She is an expert at making friends, keeping friends, and not arousing jealousies or pissing anyone off. And she knew that once I take the first three steps up alone towards my first wife, Akimi, I never turn back. Besides, once Uma disinfects and stitches me, Akimi is an expert at wrapping wounds without questioning and at sensually, sensuously and silently soothing me. She'd done it a few times before, like the difference between fire and water. Tonight, I prefer her. <laughs>